morning, everyone. We're going to continue on in our studies in Exodus. I was thinking about going from, from worship to teaching and, and how for 11 years, that's what we did. I, was, I did worship and then took that hat off and came over and put the hat on and, and taught. And I was asked sometimes, is, that, is it different? You know, I mean, it, does it throw you off to do one and then go into the other? Are they, are they that different? And I realized they really aren't because worshiping and the word we worship in the word. We worship in song. Worship is not the instrumental music. Worship is the heart. And we worship God in our hearts with, with music and with song, with psalms and hymns, the Bible says, and spiritual songs. We also worship God in the word. And I invite you to enter into some worship through the Bible this morning as we open up Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. We're going to look at something that happened that is among the more stirring and remarkable moments in the Hebrew scriptures. Early on with Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and, and the elders of Israel, something happens here that I, I don't know that any of them expected with the exception perhaps of Moses. But listen to this, Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 el of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and they drank. Wow, what a vision. Father, give us a vision this morning. Give us vision, Lord, to behold you and to see you. We pray for that day when we will be caught up through the sapphire sky and we will see you, Lord. We will stand, no, we will bow before you. But until that day, I'm asking, Lord, that you would give us a renewed vision for those who have walked with you and known you, uh, a refreshed vision this morning, but for those who are coming to you for the first time, that there would be sight. For you are a, a sight, Lord, for sore eyes, and we seek to see you this morning. Holy Spirit, would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 24, again, among the more remarkable of the stories, as they went up, and the Bible tells us they saw God. This past Christmas, 2019, I gave Cheryl what I thought was the perfect gift. I mean, how do you top this? I gave her the gift of sight. <laughs> yeah. In January, we went down to LASIK Plus down in Renton for the procedure that would change Cheryl's life. See, she was going back and forth between the reading glasses and not wearing glasses, and, and, and the distance, you know, the driving and, and nighttime vision and all that stuff was, was getting difficult, and, and she just wanted to be done with it. She didn't want to have to wear glasses. And so we went down to get LASIK vision, and boy, did that procedure change her life. See, her right eye was immediately 20-20, but her left eye was in left field. The, the, it didn't work. I don't know if it didn't take or they didn't adjust the machinery correctly, but her left eye, she literally couldn't see hardly at all. We had to go out and, and get some special glasses made for her that had 
like nothing on the right side, but the left side could adjust for it. And she's always taken those off. And, and it was such a nightmare. It was such a headache. And they told her when she called and said, this is not working. We waited a week. We waited two weeks. This isn't working. They said, well, we can't do a corrective procedure for three months. So we waited three months, January, February, March. And COVID-19 and the quarantine hit. And it was over six months before we could get back down there, finally, to get her vision corrected. Now, she can see clearly now, but so much for the gift of sight. I am sticking to Christmas sweaters from here on out. That's it. But forget about 2020 vision. What about a vision for 2020? Now, see, that sounds like a New Year's Day teaching. And I'm sure it was across America, pastors and churches teaching about vision for 2020. <laughs> no one knew what was coming. The Lord knew. But nobody saw this year from wildfires to pandemics to riots to all of the mess that is going on around us. Vision for 2020? I'd just like to see my way through 2020, through the smoke and the oppression. Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward. Blessed are the pure in heart. Sounds good. They shall see God. So all we got to do is be pure in heart. See, the thing is, Jesus also said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Does that not sound like what we've just been studying? The 10 words, the Decalogue, the, the 10 commandments that we just finished unpacking in which Jesus showed us all of these are violated in the heart before in the behavior, before in the action. That, that murder begins with anger and adultery comes from lust and stealing, bearing false witness. All of these are launched from covetousness in the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. But look at the heart, it's a mess. Several people told me after hearing the commentary of, of Christ on the Ten Commandments, as we looked in Matthew chapter 5, they realized they'd broken every single commandment. We're going to get a list of those people out to you just as soon as we can, by the way. But how can any of us ever hope to see God with such impure, imperfect, impaired hearts? How can we see God like this? And how, as far as that goes, did Moses and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. How in the world did they see God? Exodus 24 is problematic in the scriptures. For many scholars and, and, and Bible teachers, you come to this one, and even from a biblical perspective, Yahweh is going to very quickly tell Moses in Exodus 32, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But, but, but what about on the, but didn't the, no man can see me and live, and yet the Bible tells us they saw God. Which one is it? Is that one of those biblical contradictions that the critic love, loves to point out? And of course, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Well, wait a minute. They saw God, didn't they? 
So people try to soften the seeing of God in Exodus chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, that medieval rabbi Moshe bin Maimon, Maimonides, or also known as the Rambam, I like that one, he said this, he said, this passage, this, this seeing of God must be understood as intellectual perception, but in no way as real perceiving with the eye. Problem is, Moses not only repeats that they saw God, in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel, in verse 11, and they saw God. He says it twice, as if to emphasize it, but then even more so, he'll use two different Hebrew verbs to mention it, to, to, to express it. The first one is the typical one for seeing, ra'ah, they saw God. And it's common, it just means to see, to look at. Like I'm looking at Jake right now, ra'ah, I, I see my brother. Well, that's the common seeing. But then in verse 11 when it says, and they saw God, to really drive the point home, Moses uses chazah, and chazah means to behold, to gaze at, to inspect. That's much more intensive. In fact, Sarna says, chazah connotes far greater intensity than ra'ah. And he says it belongs to the vocabulary of prophetic visions. This is the way the prophets saw God. The prophetic visions, it was always the chazah because they saw and they gazed at and they inspected the prophecies that were brought to them, that were given to them. So the idea here is that it's seeing more than what the human eye normally sees. And Moses even anticipates a question about this that they saw God, that they beheld God. Note in verse 11, it says, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. Recognizing God should have whacked them right there for seeing him, should have killed him in the instant. And it's further complicated. They saw God. It is absolutely unequivocally clear that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, You'll hear more about them later. And the 70 elders of Israel, that they actually saw him. They, they had a, a vision of the Father. They saw God. And yet, we also see in Genesis 32, verse 30, that Jacob, after wrestling through the night, named the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. God said, no man can see me and live. Jacob saw God. Judges chapter 13, verse 22, Samson's father, a man by the name of Manoah, says to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. He understood that they were not to see God or they would die, but they saw God. So he's having this inner conflict within himself. What's going to happen here? We saw him. No one can see him and live. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah the prophet says, my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. John, the apostle, said in Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But the same John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. And in 3 John, chapter, uh, 3 John verse 11, he said, the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God. Well, doesn't that imply that the one who does good has seen God? So we have this back and forth in Scripture, and it can be confusing. 
How do we make sense of this holy visual conundrum? Do we see him or do we not see him? Have people seen him or have they not seen him? Well, let's back up a bit. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and and see if we can comprehend this a little better and make sense of what seems to be two very different things that are stated clearly in Scripture. Moses and the children of Israel, as we open up Exodus 24, stood before that fiery, stormy, quaking, shaking mountain. They heard the Lord our God, Yahweh Ka'eloche, they heard him speak, pronouncing the Ten Commandments, booming like a trumpet blast in Exodus chapter 20. And then after that, Moses goes up the mountain to receive further instruction related to the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments are given, and then Moses goes up and gets all the clarification of those commands in Exodus 21, 22, and 23. And as chapter 24 begins, Moses is still up the mountain. The children are still down below, along with the elders and and Aaron. They're all still down below. Moses is up the mountain, and Exodus 24, verse 1 says, He, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship, or literally bow down at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now understand that Mount Horeb appears to be divided into three zones. Three zones. There's the, the foot of Mount Horeb, and that's where the sons of Israel hear from the Lord at first, and they and they are to worship, and that's where they are gathered. But there's a second zone that seems to be just part way up the mountain where Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they will travel up to this zone too. And then there's the third zone, which is the summit, and that's where Moses would meet with God. That's where Moses would go to receive the, the tablets of stone. But these first three verses bring us to what you could call an epilogue to the scene that runs from chapter 20 all the way through chapter 24, verse 3. It's the epilogue to this part of the story. The prologue, if you'll go back to chapter 19, Exodus 19, and look at verse 3. It tells us that Moses, and this is his first ascent, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, my unique treasure among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Then Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people, note this, answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And that is the prologue. You see, they hadn't even heard all that the Lord had spoken. God just said he was going to speak to them. He was going to share. He wanted them to obey him, but he didn't tell them yet what they needed to obey, and yet they jump right out in front and say, all that he's spoken will do. Now, that might have been out of sheer terror. 
it may have been a little presumptuous, like they were up to the task. But either way, they'd only, at that point, they, they were about to hear the ten words. Hadn't even heard the ten words. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, then, we come back to chapter 24, verse 3, and they say again, after Moses now recounts to them. So they've heard the ten words, and Moses goes up the mountain, gets the clarifications of chapters 21, 22, 23, and then he comes, and he shares all that with them. Now they've got a better picture, and now they say in verse 3, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses does something to, as it were, set that covenant in stone, you know, to confirm the covenant. He put it in writing. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. All the words of the Lord. And then Moses did something else. He built an altar. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, now pause for a moment. This caught my attention that Moses was apparently an early riser. He arose early, we're told, in the morning. That tends to be a pattern among godly people. Early to rise. Psalm 5 tells us in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Interesting, because if you only pray at the end of the day, you have no opportunity to see what God's going to do, to see how he's going to answer, because you're going to go right on to sleep. And many of you, and I know this, you start praying at bedtime and you fall asleep mid-prayer. Well, how do you know that? Rick is kind of judgmental. I know it because it happens to me all the time. Praying at the end of the day, not that you shouldn't, but early up. Starting the day with the Lord in prayer. Listen to Psalm 108, verse 1. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul, that is with my mind. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn, which implies an early up. You're singing, awakening the dawn. I was sharing with my daughter a few minutes ago. Cracks me up. Steve Lukather, the lead guitarist of Toto, the band back in the 80s and, and still up, almost up to this day. Amazing guitarist, but he, he was really getting frustrated. True story, this, this just happened. Getting incredibly frustrated with his neighbors and their leaf blowers on either side early in the morning, waking him up at 7 a.m. Leaf blowers going off, blowing all that noise. So he took his amplifier and his guitar out into the backyard and early in the morning, just started playing, screaming, wild electric guitar solo. Plays, you can see it on YouTube. Plays through the solo, hits the final chord, and then shouts, Good morning! <laughs> Good morning. I will awaken the dawn. I, I'm not suggesting you pray that way. <laughs> not suggesting a shout out. But a song of praise to the Lord, beginning, I will awaken the dawn. Psalm 108, verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and answer me, my friends, in the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. 
We love that song. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You want to be delivered through your day? You want to alter your day? Start with Jesus. He's up. You're not going to wake him up. He's already there. He's ready. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says, In the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Godly people up before the dawn with the Lord to a time of quiet prayer to welcome in the day. That's what Jesus did. The Bible tells us now he never sleeps, he never slumbers. So to begin the day with God, like Moses, early in the morning. Charles Spurgeon once said, it's a good rule never to look into the face of a man in the morning till you have looked into the face of God. In the Pacific Northwest, I think we've substituted looking into the face of God for the face of a mermaid on a coffee cup. But Moses is up early. Preparing for worship so that when the people awoke, the altar would be ready. Verse 5, he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings called olah. And they sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings called shalomim to the Lord. I gave you the words because those are two very specific offerings. They wasn't just, hey, let's offer up some animals here. This was uh, two specific offerings, burnt offerings and peace offerings. And we're not going to get the full specs on these until Leviticus. Chapters 1 through 5, which actually gives five specific, different, unique offerings for Israel to bring to the Lord at the altar. And this is just two of them. And often these two are offered together. You might ask the question, well, Okay, so they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings here, but they don't know about them till Leviticus chapter 1, so how could they possibly offer them ahead of time? Now listen, because I've, I've really looked into this, done some specific study to give you this answer. I don't know. I don't know how they knew to offer burnt offerings and what the procedure was for the burnt offerings or to offer peace offerings, shalomim, and to know what the procedure was for that. I don't know how they knew ahead of time. Perhaps God had already given that by divine revelation or instruction. Perhaps there was some degree of tradition in this because offerings have been given by Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, all, all the way down the line up to Moses. So was there, there clearly was some sense of understanding about offerings. Perhaps burnt offerings and peace offerings had always been offered, but just the additional offerings would be added into the mix in Leviticus 1 through 5. The point is, the point is Moses offered these, that this is what happened, Olah, the burnt offering, and Shalomim, the peace offering. But consider just for a moment, if you will, and we're going to get back to seeing God Consider the ABCs of the offerings. We just do ABC. A, the altar of 12 pillars. A for the altar. Moses built this altar. Pillars is the Hebrew word that means memorial stones. So 12 memorial stones. In other words, each one of the 12 stones representing a tribe of Israel, they'd be uncut stones as prescribed earlier by the Lord. If you build an altar, here's how you do it. So 12 stones that would memorialize Israel gathered around a sacrifice. Think about that picture. Just as the 12 tribes would gather around, ultimately, the tabernacle in their wilderness wanderings and the offerings that would be made right in the midst of the 12 tribes of Israel through the wilderness. 
And then in Jerusalem, Jerusalem at the centerpiece of the land of Israel, and the temple there, and the offerings would be, made, would be made there in the midst of the 12 tribes, again, of Israel. So these memorial stones were stacked up and built for an altar. And then in verse 6, we're told that Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So A is for altar, B is for blood, the blood of the offerings. And what we do know about these two offerings is remarkably instructive. First of all, understand, they did burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were to be completely consumed. That's the idea of the burnt offering, is the entire gift of the animal, the entire offering was to be consumed on the altar. The burnt offering signified nothing was to be held back from God. It was a portrayal of giving all that one had. And we see this in Genesis 22, verse 2, where the Lord said to Abram, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, an olah, on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. He said, in verse 12, later in the chapter, after Abraham is all ready to go, he's about to slay his son Isaac, offer him as a burnt offering. That means that after he slew his son, that he would burn Isaac up completely on the altar. The olah, the burnt offering. A, a total giving of all that he had in his son. But God stops him in verse 12, says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the burnt offering is a portrayal of giving it all up. Giving God everything. Let me ask you a question. How far are you willing to go to see God? What are you willing to give up to see the Lord? Maybe another way to ask that question in our lives today is what are you holding back? What am I not giving up? What am I clinging to or hanging on to that I've not handed over or given to the Lord? You know, God doesn't want much from you. He just wants all of you. He wants all that you are, all that I am. And that's the burnt offering. It portrays giving up everything, a complete surrender, a, a complete handing over to the Lord of all that I am, of all that is my life, of not holding anything back. You want to see God? Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Peace offerings, on the other hand, the blood of the peace offerings, these were shared experiences, shared between the worshiper and God, which is why it's called a peace offering. They symbolized communion and fellowship and togetherness. And, and the reason that offering is given along with the burnt offering is at this point, this is the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant with God. Now, there's going to be more confirmation as we go, but this is the first time where we're seeing it inaugurated, that this is accepted by the people, God doing his part, and the people coming around to do their part as well, that they are in agreement. And so they share the, the peace offering, which was a fellowship and relationship, the people coming together with God to share this offering. Some would be burnt and given to the Lord on the altar, and the rest would be shared, that is, eaten by the offerers, by the people. We'll see more of that in just a second. 
But in this inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, understand that the peace offering anticipates the peace of a better covenant. A covenant that you can't keep and I can't keep, but Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which the Hebrew pastor says speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why? Because Abel's blood cries for vengeance, justice. Whereas the blood of Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary cries for mercy and grace. What did he say from the cross? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the blood of the new covenant. See, the blood of the old covenant was always a requirement, had to continually be offered, was demanding and exacting. But the blood of the new covenant was the blood of Jesus, which covers you from having to give your blood to try and cover your sin, which wouldn't work anyway. A peace offering. Jesus held nothing back, as in the burnt offering. He held nothing back so that we might have peace with God and in fact every godly sacrifice in the Hebrew scriptures looks ahead to the sacrifice of Messiah to that that perfect offering of his own pure blood a on the altar b the blood and c covenant covenant verse 7 then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said this is the third time All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and note this, we will be obedient. Literally, we will do, and we will shema. We will hear. Shema is a big deal to the Jewish people. The shema is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the shema, the hear. And hearing always with Israel implies obedience. All the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will hear. To hear is to obey. Get that. To hear is to obey. The Bible says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, Christ. To hear is to obey. To have faith is to follow through in obedience. If you don't obey, you don't have faith, and you haven't heard. But that's the Shema. And Moses reads out the covenant, and the people say, we will obey, we will do, we will hear. And in verse 8, so Moses, note this, took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the covenant is inaugurated. But get this, please don't miss this. We've talked about these things before, but it's one of the most vital truths in the Hebrew scriptures. And that is that this covenant that God makes with Israel is the only conditional covenant in the Bible. It's the only one where God says, I will do this for you, but you need to do this for me. They enter into covenant together. Every other covenant God gives is one-sided. It is unconditional. Going all the way back to the Adamic covenant through the Noahic covenant, you can go all the way down the Davidic covenant, the kingdom covenant, the land covenant. And we come all the way down to the new covenant that Jesus promised with his own blood. And that new covenant is divinely one-sided. It is unconditional. Jesus says, I will save you. 
What do I have to do? Believe me that I will save you. Trust me that I will save you. Well, Rick, just a few minutes ago, you asked us how far are you willing to go to see God? Yeah, I did. But it's not gonna save you. There's nothing you can do. No amount of love, no amount of action, no amount of, of grace given to others, no amount of compassion, no amount of good deeds can get you into heaven. It is only the grace of Jesus Christ. It's his blood. It's his one-sided covenant. We enter into that covenant simply by receiving it and believing God for his word. You might ask, well, why sprinkle blood on the people? I mean, think about that. All the people gather. I mean, that's a lot of blood. Of course, we have no idea how many burnt offerings, peace offerings, as these animals were slain to be offered up on the altar, how many were offered, how long that took, and the gathering, of course, of the blood into basins, and then, I don't know, passing the basins around as Moses is walking around sprinkling blood. Men, women, children, can you imagine the scene? A bloody mess. Why? Why? This is strange, especially in our Western culture. Listen, Jake just implied this, that the blood, the blood, this has always been God's most graphic picture of life. See, even from very creation, when God made us to, to cause blood to flow through us, and without the blood, there is no life. So Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. That's how serious it is. And it's a picture that God drew from very creation. That he put blood in us so that when the blood was offered, we might get a sense, this is a life thing. This is as serious as my life. And so Moses sprinkles the blood over them to signify atonement. So that they would visually know they could see, if you will, that they were covered, that there was blood on them. It was a great covering of mercy. Mottier puts it this way. He said, they, the people, had committed to obedience. But God knows our best intentions fall constantly short. So he provided the blood of the sacrifice at the ready to cater for their each and every lapse from his covenant. Before they even walked out the covenant, they already had blood on them. They already had covering on them because God knew the second they start to do what they said they would do, they're going to fail. So he sprinkles the blood. Verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. When did they see God? After the blood. They saw God after the blood. Hold that thought. What a sight it was. What a remarkable sight. As we see in verse 10 continuing, under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. And this is consistent with other visions of God. As Ezekiel describes what he saw, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, he said, above the expanse that was over their heads, there, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli, we would say sapphire. That sapphire blue in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. John said, 
Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So Moses and the elders saw this sapphire pavement. E Ezekiel sees this lapis lazuli, sapphire. And John writes, a sea of glass, which I submit to you is all the same thing. That we're talking about some kind of translucent, pure sapphire flooring or pavement beneath the feet of God. By the way, note this, Moses, Ezekiel, and John all couch their words in ambiguity. They use phrases like, well, like, like. I saw something like. He's not saying that's what I saw. He's saying I, my best word to describe that would be something like. Uh, they say something resembling. They say there appeared to be, as we see in verse 10 here, under his feet there appeared to be a, a, a pavement of sapphire. Was it a pavement of sapphire? I don't know. They, it appeared that way. And all of these three prophets are ambiguous. Why? How do you describe the indescribable? How do you use Hebrew or Greek or English language to, to in, in some way, attempt to describe God? And by the way, Moses doesn't even describe God. He just mentions his feet. He doesn't say anything else about what he looks like. And, and Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel says, looking up through that sapphire, that pavement, that, that sea of glass, perhaps, looking up, I saw a throne, and one resembling a son of man. That's as much as you get from Ezekiel. Resembles a son of man. John gives a stunningly vivid description of, of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. But they're all vague. They're all unclear. They're all talking about things that look like. And as they approached God, that is Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, as they approached God, there are two possibilities for the whole perspective that they had in that moment. First off, they saw his feet because they fell down to worship. So they weren't looking at his face. They weren't looking at his chest or his arms or his hands. They were just looking at his feet because they were down on their faces, worshiping him before him. The second more likely option is that they saw his feet because they were looking upward from the side of the mountain, up toward the throne, up through the sapphire pavement, through the sea of glass that was over their heads. They looked up to see God from under his feet. And you know, that is the same exact vantage point that we have today. What do you mean? A paralyzed man was lowered through the roof to Jesus because the situation was over everyone else's head, but it was under his feet as he forgave the man's sin and then healed him. The wind blew and the waves rolled high over Peter's head as he tried to walk on the water. But the waves were under Jesus' feet. Not a problem for the Lord. The apostles were completely overcome by grief after his death. But even his death was under his feet as Jesus walked right out of the tomb. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Just remember that when you feel like you're in over your head. That it's under his feet. It's always under his feet. When the world is oppressive and the smoke is rolling in and, and you feel like, I, just, I can't take this, I can't handle this. This is way above my pay grade. This is over my head. It's under his feet. 
It's always under his feet. Jesus has got it. Verse 11, so they look up. They see his feet there. They see the, the pavement of sapphire looking up to the Lord. Verse 11, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw, they beheld, they saw God. And they ate and they drank. So they weren't down on their faces the whole time. Maybe at first as they look up, they fall down. They see his feet and they begin to worship. But, but now, they, now they begin to eat. Now they're having what the ancients would call a covenant meal with God. So often meals were, were uh, ratified or covenants were ratified in meals. What did they eat, people wonder. Uh, some have suggested maybe bread and wine. Others say, well, no, it's obvious. It's the, their portion of the peace offering. That makes sense. They do the peace offerings and they bring their portion up and they literally share it. They eat it before the Lord. But the whole point is the dining. They dined in fellowship with God in a covenant meal. And again, that was ancient practice, not a new concept. Isaac and Abimelech, they ratified a covenant and they shared a fellowship meal following that. Genesis 26, verse 30. Genesis 31, 46, Jacob and Laban share a covenant meal after making promises to each other. This is a big deal. Eating in the Middle East is about fellowship and community and unity. It said if you come into the tent of a Bedouin, you come under his covering while you share a meal with him. And so that's the whole concept here is that they are sharing a, a covenant meal. Isn't that interesting? Because it was a covenant meal on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Luke twenty two nineteen, He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Amazing. See, Jesus just keeps it going. He shares a covenant meal there for the new covenant. Even before, in his case, he ratified the covenant itself at the cross. Why in that order? So he could share the meal with his friends. So he could have fellowship with the apostles there one last time before the crucifixion. And by the way, it's why we do it here. It's why we take communion and do it often. It's why even during the live stream, every Sunday, every Wednesday, we share it in communion together. It's why when we're gathered on the hillside, we're sharing in communion together. It's why when we're back in the building, and by the way, I plan to be back into the building this month, at least on Wednesday nights, but on those midweek services, we share communion. Why do we do that? We do it because Jesus said as often as you do these things, remember me. Oh, we don't do it as ritual. We do it as relationship. And it's so valuable. I, I, I love this. We were talking in, in our staff meeting this past week about, about the cost of the communion packets. You know, the little packets that we're using now because of COVID and everything else. It's got the juice in there and it's got the little cellophane on top of it. It's got the little styrofoam cracker. So we were talking about that this morning. We're, we're convinced it's, it's a mixture of paper and styrofoam, maybe a little plastic. That's what those wafers are made of. So those things are in there. We're using this, these little packets, but they are expensive. They're almost a dollar a piece. Unbelievably expensive. Someone's going to pay for that someday, I think. But we're talking about a staff meeting. I said, well, you know, since the packets are so expensive, do you, you, how would you all feel like if we just went back to Sundays only 
sharing communion weekly on Sundays. And we, there's no prescription, there's no command that says you have to do it Sunday, Wednesday, small groups. You know, it's just, we, that, that's been left to us. So I said, what if we cut that in half? We just did Sundays. And I, I was so honestly, so honored by our staff and their response. They're like, no, 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 it's too important. We can't, we can't cut back on that. Brandy's like, I'll cut back on my entire women's ministry budget. And I said, well, we already have done that. And so, <laughs> but the point is that they saw the value, the value of relationship, the value of fellowship. And that's what the covenant meal is. That's what's going on here. Probably at zone two there on the mountain as they're gathered before the Lord in fellowship with him. And verse 12 says, now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. And Moses went up the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Well, then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Note this. Yahweh literally says to Moses in verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and be there. My Bible translates it, remain there. The phrase is, be there. Come up to the mountain and just, just be there. Come up and plan to stay. Come up and just be. I, I don't have any requirements, anything for you to do. You just come up and be. Be with me. Don't zip in and zip out. <laughs> come and, and be with me. Oh, why not? We're here live streaming. Have I told you that story? My family was coming back into town. We, we, had to, we had a Sunday. We had several things we were doing going on. Had the Sunday morning, and then we were out of town for the afternoon. We were coming back into town. We we're going by Bowman's Bay, and some, and some dear friends were having a birthday party. And I was tired, and Cheryl was tired, and, and Hayden was with us. Hayden was pretty young at the time. And so we pull into Bowman's Bay. And before we got out of the van, I said, now listen, Hayden. We're going to zip in and zip out. So don't, don't go and get lost running around with your friends. You stay close by because I'm tired. Dad's tired. I got to get home. Zip in and zip out. So we, we get out of the van. We go down there. We're, we're there with our friends. And, and we're sitting, talking, and chatting. And, and Hayden runs off. But then he comes back just a couple minutes later. We hadn't been there more than maybe five minutes. And talking with our friends, Hayden walks up to me and goes, Dad, I thought you said we were just going to zip in and zip out. I'm like, zip it. <laughs> anyway, the Lord is saying, Come and stay. Come and, and be. Just come and be. Do you know why so many people miss God? So many don't see God, miss out on his wisdom, his instruction, his will? We got no time. We're grabbing our Starbucks in the morning and we're heading off to work. And we haven't even thought about God. We got too much to do, too much to take care of. We've got busyness in our lives. We're on the rush. And the Lord says into the midst of your life and mine, cease striving and know that I am God. You can say that a couple of different ways, can't you? Cease striving and know that I am God. Or cease striving and know that I am God. You want to know him? It comes from rest. It comes from peace. It comes from quietness. It comes from 
trust. And that all comes from Isaiah 30, verse 15. To cease and know. How can a person expect to develop a pure heart to see God when we don't even have time to just be there? Come up, Moses, and be there. It's one of my favorite intimate moments, though it's easily missed when Jesus is calling his disciples, his his 12 boys. And Mark tells us, Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed 12, listen, so that they would be with him. That's a personal reason. Jesus wanted the 12 with him. He wanted the 12 to surround him. These are the the ones he chose to walk with and share with and be with. So they would be with him. And then Mark goes on and says, so he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And we rush right ahead to that. The preaching, the casting out of demons. I want the prestige. I want the power. He wants me to be there. Be there with him. See, because to God, the relationship is the most important part. Love God. Love people. Both require us to just be there. Exodus chapter 33 verse 11 even tells us that thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop, which is why the Hebrew pastor ultimately will write, our God is a consuming fire. And Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain. 40 days and 40 nights. How do you see God? Moses spoke to him as a friend face to face. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, they saw, they beheld God. And all the other examples we've seen, and yet they're the biblical statement about no one can see God and live. So what's the deal? How do you see God? Again, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Part of the answer is the heart must be purified, or there is not going to be any seeing. Only the blood does that. Remember, Moses and the leaders went up after the blood. After the blood was sprinkled, after the blood was given, but, but the blood of animals can only temporarily atone can only temporarily cover, can only give the sense. Even as as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that God passed over the sins committed then until ultimately his son would come, until ultimately the pure blood would wash all of it away. But for now, he's going to just cover them. He's going to mark them, if you will, with the blood of animals to represent the blood of the newer covenant that was yet to come. But if you want to see God, you've got to have a pure heart. And the only way to have a pure heart comes after the blood. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, I believe Jake just read this in communion. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere or true heart. You could even say a pure heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our conscience an evil Uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's the blood, the blood that makes the heart pure. And blessed then are the pure in heart for they shall see God and we shall see God and be in the presence of God because it comes after the blood and after the purification. And you might say, Pastor Rick, I still think you're dancing around the question a bit. How do we see God? How did they see God? As we began, I said, remember, Just after Christmas, pastors and churches were all hyped up on 2020 vision, New Year's messages. But no one had vision for this year. All of our plans were thrown in the wastebasket. We're all flying by the seat of our pants or prayerfully we're flying by faith in the Lord. But we don't know what even tomorrow's going to bring. Last Sunday out on the hillside, I was looking forward to this Sunday out on the hillside. And we're back live streaming this morning. Come on. No vision for this year. But you know, there is a 2020 vision that will change your life. And it's John chapter 20, verse 20. Remember it that way. You want 2020 vision? John 2020. Here it is. He showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. When they saw the Lord. Maybe you know the story. Thomas wasn't there to see. The others told him, but he he couldn't believe it. But Jesus then showed up a week later and showed him the same scars in his hands and in his feet. And he said, John chapter 20, verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, note that. He calls him God. And Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You want to see God? You want to see God? You must believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. See, John said in John Chapter 1, verse 14, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says in John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or as the Hebrew writer says, he's the exact representation of his being. In John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father. Also from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Listen, he who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? How can you see God? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you know what that means? 
Do you realize the implication of that? That when Moses and company went up to station two on the mountainside and saw God, they looked up, they saw the one seated on the throne. My friends, they saw Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus. The Bible doesn't say they saw Yahweh. It says they saw God. Now, I and the Father are one. Jesus and Yahweh, and this is, this is mind-blowing, the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one in equality. They are one God. He is one. And the church does not get this. In fact, according to LifeWay Research, just this last week or a couple weeks ago, fully 30% of evangelical Christians don't believe Jesus is God. If that's you, listen, where have you been? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus Christ is God. The Bible is absolute on this. How can nearly one-third of those who claim to be Christians, Christ followers, declarers of the gospel, not know who Jesus is? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Listen, to be the Christ is to be God. This is the Antichrist, John writes, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Why? Because Father and Son are one. To see Jesus is to see God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So when it says in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel, they beheld God. When Jacob said, I have seen him face to face, when Moses talked to him as one talks to a friend face to face, I believe, personal opinion, they're talking about Jesus before Christ. I've used that phrase a couple of times recently. Jesus before Christ. Jesus before God put on flesh and dwelt among us to become the Messiah of Israel and the world. Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. God with us. God among us. God on the mountain. They saw God. Ezekiel said, I saw a man seated on the throne. And John described that man in Revelation 1 verses 12 through 18 as Jesus Christ. Exodus 24 is the story of salvation. Note that they start at a distance down around the foot of the mountain, just as we are separated from God by our sin. But he invites us to come into his presence. He gives us his word. If we hear, if we respond in faith, he purifies us by the pure and perfect blood of Christ. And then you know what he does next? He brings us up into his presence where we dine with him, we fellowship with him, we behold and gaze at him. And Jesus even still to this day would say to you, to me, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And by the way, that is right now. That is right now. We are in a position before Jesus, before God, of seeing God by faith, of trusting God through obedience, of knowing God through hearing. 
And that's today. And that's you come into a relationship with God. You're, you're there. You're looking up through the sapphire pavement. You're seeing God in the person of Jesus. And you're dining with him, fellowshipping with him, communing with him right here, right now. But there's more, isn't there? For the follower of Jesus, for those whose heart is made pure in Christ Oh, there's so much more. Verse 16, again, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Verse 18 says, then Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. My friends, listen, six days, Moses is up there, but he's waiting to enter the cloud. And on the seventh day, Moses entered glory. How long have we been on this planet now by biblical reckoning? 6,000 years. So my question to you this morning is, are you ready to go up and into his glory at the start of the seventh day? 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, what Paul calls the last trumpet because the Israelites have just heard the first trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. The Lord will call and we will go. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Do you want to see God? Love him. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful to you for your word. So thankful to you for the blessing of knowing you and hearing you and seeing you through Jesus. And for all those who have been given the glory of, of a vision of you, to, to see you, Jesus, as you said, is to see the Father. And I pray that you will give us vision to see our way through all of the smog and fog and, and cloud and smoke of the world around us right now. So much oppression, yet, yet there is freedom in Christ Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, your word tells us. Father, I pray that you will bring us into a place where the sky is as clear as lapis lazuli, as transparent as sapphire. I pray for the day when we will fall before your feet and worship you and so forever be with the Lord. I ask right now, Lord, for anyone who is suffering from this oppression, struggling with all that is going on. Your grace and your mercy be poured out in full. And I pray for more visions of Jesus until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.